Welcome to the Insomnia Coach Podcast. My name is Martin Reed. I believe that nobody needs to live with chronic insomnia and that evidence-based cognitive and behavioral techniques can help you enjoy better sleep for the rest of your life. The content of this podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not medical advice and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease, disorder or medical condition. It should never replace any advice given to you by your physician or any other licensed healthcare provider. Insomnia Coach LLC offers coaching services only and does not provide therapy, counseling, medical advice or medical treatment. The statements and opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily endorsed by Insomnia Coach LLC. All content is provided as is and without warranties, either express or implied. Dr. Mendelssohn is a psychiatrist, sleep doctor and author who works primarily in the field of sleep research and sleep medicine. He's perhaps best known for his research related to the properties of sleeping pills and the effect of medication on sleep. He most recently worked at the University of Chicago as a professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology and was the director of the school's sleep research laboratory. Two books authored by Dr. Mendelssohn that might be of particular interest to those listening to this podcast are Understanding Sleeping Pills and The Science of Sleep. Both are available on Amazon and links are available in the show notes for this episode. In this episode, Dr. Mendelssohn describes the evolution of sleeping pills, explains how they work, and shares information on their potential side effects. We also talk about over-the-counter pills and supplements, and the evidence-based alternative to sleeping pills and recommended first-line treatment for chronic insomnia, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. CBTI. A full transcript of this podcast can be found at insomniacoach.com forward slash podcast. Okay, Dr. Mendelssohn, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast today. Well, thank you, Martin. I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you. I'm really excited to cover this whole topic of sleeping pills. But before we move on to that specifically, can you tell us a little bit more about your own background and how you got interested in the field of sleep? Well, sure. Um, I guess the best way to describe it is that I was a a student uh, in the 1960s, and it was a remarkably exciting time. Uh, in the field of psychiatry, the, the uh, 1950s and early 60s saw a, a revolutionary kind of evolution. Prior to that time, the, the dominant uh, process in, in American psychiatry had to do with uh, psychoanalytic uh, treatment and Freudian uh, notions, which involved things like understanding the unconscious and the very powerful influence of early childhood on adult life. And although this was very interesting thing and and still, I believe a very important thing, it, it, uh, it it didn't fully address the the range of psychiatric patients in my opinion. And then 
suddenly in the 50s, a whole new era opened up. It, it began with the discovery of um, Thorazine, which revolutionized the way uh, hospitalized patients were taken care of. Uh, the two major kinds of antidepressants, uh, MAO inhibitors and tricyclic antidepressants came along. Um, probably a little more relevant to our today's talk in 1961, the first benzodiazepine chlorodiazepoxide uh, became available in the U.S. and was seen as a very remarkable uh, improvement for um, anxiety uh, compared to the barbiturates. And we'll talk about that later. So it was a very exciting era. And uh, that in combination with a chance occurrence, which had to do with <coughs> the military service uh, obligations during the Vietnam era, uh, put me in contact with uh, Richard Wyatt, who was a uh, very well-known psychiatrist who was very involved in, among other areas, sleep. He and his colleague, Chris Gillen, were very important influences on me and led to uh, my interest in sleep. That's great. So for those who don't know how i found out about you was through two books that you've that you've authored understanding sleeping pills is one of them and the other one is the science of sleep and in those books you outline the development of sleeping pills and what was interesting to me was you mentioned how each generation of sleeping pills seemed to kind of bring improvements on the previous generation but after that initial enthusiasm of this newest generation kind of died down, we'd usually recognize limitations and then move on to a new generation. Um, so can you kind of talk us, talk us through this a little, like the, the kind of evolution of sleeping pills? Well, sure. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, medicines for sleep uh, have gone through many generations. Uh, just to talk about relatively recent uh, history. Uh, certainly the barbiturates were the dominant kind of sleeping pills uh, starting at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And uh, as years went on and experience was gained with them, their many limitations became very, very obvious and were very clear by mid-century. Uh, among these were um, that uh, they were very lethal in overdose. Uh, they were dependence producing. They could suppress respiration um, in uh, people who already had uh, some kind of underlying pulmonary disease, including, of course, sleep apnea. And uh, their use was very, very widespread. Uh, a very good description of it uh, in, you know, in non-medical terms was the Jacqueline Suzanne's book, The Valley of the Dolls, which described lifestyles of abusing barbiturates uh, very clearly. Uh, from a scientific point of view, there was uh, REM sleep had been relatively recently discovered in the 1950s, and it was found that barbiturates were powerful suppressors of REM sleep, although nobody was quite sure what the significance of, of that was. 
Now, in any event, uh, starting in uh, 1961 with the first benzodiazepines and then 1970 when fluorazepam or dalmane, the first benzodiazepine that was specifically recommended for sleep came along, uh, people recognized a number of of benefits of benzodiazepines compared to the older barbiturates. Uh, among others, they didn't suppress REM sleep. Other was that they, they were relatively safer in overdose. And I say relatively because uh, this is true, relatively true in people who are medically healthy and who have not taken a second drug. But the vast majority of overdoses are in combinations of drugs and usually with alcohol. And in that case, benzodiazepines can become very toxic and indeed lethal. So, so this is a relative improvement compared to barbiturates. Um, unlike barbiturates, they didn't stimulate the um, liver enzymes to break down other drugs more quickly. Um, Originally, it was thought that they had little effect on uh, respiration, but uh, in work, in later work that uh, I and others did, we showed that again, compared to barbiturates, it is much less, but it still nonetheless was present. So, so these were seen as as improvements over. Um, earlier agents, uh, as, as the decades went on, of course, a number of things had come to light. One was that um, they, uh, they too could be drugs of abuse. Uh, another one is that um, the respiratory uh, suppression, which I mentioned, uh, one which I thought was very interesting was that although there was this initial enthusiasm that they didn't suppress REM sleep, it turned out that they're very, very powerful uh, suppressors of slow wave sleep mm. and, uh, or, or deep sleep. And I guess now, it, now we're learning more and more about <coughs> the function of sleep stages. But uh, at the time, it wasn't clear whether suppressing one stage that uh, was more or less advantageous than suppressing another. But the point was they did not mimic uh, normal sleep. Ne neither drug did. And um, other uh, were issues of tolerance, dependence, as I mentioned. Um, other people have, have felt that their, their lives were altered by taking long-term benzodiazepines in terms of cognition, anxiety, and other things. And that's something we can talk about later. So, so benzodiazepines too have, although initially greeted rightfully with enthusiasm compared to barbiturates, also were seen to have limits. Um, in the 80s, um, we began to see the, the advent of the newer drugs uh, usually referred to as the Z drugs, Zolpidem, Zalapan, and uh, Zopiclone, or in the U.S., Esopiclone. Uh, <coughs> they, they were perceived to have advantages too. One of them was that they had relatively little effect on total amounts of REM sleep or slow wave sleep, although they do have some. Mm -hmm. 
um, they uh, had less respiratory suppression in susceptible patients, uh, although, again, they did have some. Uh, and the shorter-acting ones seem to have relatively little effect on daytime performance, although the longer ones uh, uh, clearly did. So once again, uh, as time has gone on, we've, we've, we've gained decades of experience and seen that they too have limitations. They, they can be drugs of abuse and are, like the previous two classes we've mentioned, are uh, so-called scheduled drugs by the DEA. Um, there has been concern raised about um, sleepwalking-related behaviors. Most of this is focused on the Zolpidem, but uh, I think really can happen with any sleeping pill. Mm -hmm. but, but there's certainly in the public lore and in the press a lot of uh, concern about uh, complex behaviors during sleep. So each generation then seems to uh, be greeted with enthusiasm and then over times, uh, we've learned that they probably do have some improvements over earlier ones, but still have their own kinds of limitations. Yeah. So when I was reading your book, it was really interesting how you, just as you've done now, talked about each generation and how each generation was slightly different, initially seen as an improvement, recognized some limitations, and the next generation comes out. So we had this path of starting with the barbiturates, then the benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines. And, and we're still moving forward kind of on that path, aren't we? We're seeing these other drugs now that work even in different ways, you know, like these drugs like Romelteon, Suvarexin. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the difference between what we see as like this newest generation of sleeping pills compared to the benzodiazepines and, and these Z drugs? Well, the... Uh... The 2000s have seen the introduction of the three drugs you, you mentioned, and, and they're each, each quite different. Um, uh, certainly, Romelteon is one. It's a melatonin receptor agonist. Uh, it had the um, advantage of uh, not significantly being a drug of dependence and, and being the, a... Um, not scheduled by the DEA, uh, had relatively benign uh, in terms of effects of next day alertness uh, and so on. Um, the limitation is that it's, uh, its effect is primarily for difficulty going to sleep without much effect on awakenings during the night or total sleep. And, uh, <clears throat> very often people have combinations of those problems, not just simply isolated trouble going to sleep, which can be a, a limitation. Um, another one of the newer drugs is really a new cast on an old drug, and that is low-dose doxepin. Uh, doxepin is a uh, tricyclic antidepressant uh, that's been available, you know, for several decades. Um, the new twist on it is giving it on extremely low doses, much lower doses than those that are used to typically to 
treat depression. Um, again, it's not a DEA scheduled drug. Um, and although there is some misuse of tricyclics, it's much less. Uh, and disadvantages are that um, in, in, in antidepressant kind of doses, tricyclics are very uh, lethal in overdose. And in fact, at one time, uh, they were the second most common reason for admissions to medical ICUs um, after uh, aspirin. Um, but again, that's in usually related to, to uh, higher doses. Um, they had the advantage of uh, not being clear respiratory suppressants, uh, unlike most of the previous drugs we've mentioned. And uh, they come with, and it comes with one limitation, and that limitation is that it's primarily effective for awakenings during the night, which is, of course, a very important thing. But as I mentioned before, many, if not most people with sleep difficulty have combinations of sleep symptoms. Uh, that is, for a difficulty going to sleep, awakenings during the night, or uh, too short sleep or unrefreshing sleep. So that, that can be a, a limitation on its use. Um, Subarexant was, was an exciting new development because it worked by a very different mechanism than previous sleeping pills um, in that it, it, uh, it was an Orexin antagonist. It blocked the effect of a natural uh, arousing substance, uh, Orexin. Uh, it too had its uh, limitations uh, besides issues of um, daytime sleepiness and things of this nature, um, it tends to have higher amounts in the body in the obese um, and uh, in females. And so it was learned uh, that it is often wise to be more cautious uh, with dosage in those groups. And it also introduced a new side effect pretty much not seen with other sleeping pills and having to relate to its action as an orexin antagonist. And that is that some um, people could have symptoms uh, of sleep paralysis or hypnagogic hallucinations. And although that's rare, it, uh, it does happen. So, so again, we have uh, a new generation with, with three different kinds of very different drugs, and each has certain benefits and each has certain limitations. Yeah. Something interesting that came to my mind as you described how all these different medications work is that they aren't targeting what we would say are dysfunctional areas of the brain or fixing any kind of chemical imbalance, so to speak. And I think that's an important point because many people with chronic insomnia might think that they're beyond help or they can't do anything to improve their sleep because their insomnia is caused by some kind of chemical imbalance. So not only is there no evidence to support the idea that insomnia is caused by a chemical imbalance, it sounds as though sleeping pills aren't 
targeting a chemical Im imbalance either. We're learning more and more about how these agents work. And for instance, in the benzodiazepines and the uh, Z drugs, we have a pretty clear idea that they, they tend to um, block the, the, or sorry, they tend to augment the activity of uh, GABA, gamma hydroxybutyrate, type A receptors, and uh, GABA is the most important inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, and it and enhancing uh, its activity, particularly in the hypothalamus at the base of the brain, seems to result in uh, more tranquility and um, uh, sleep and so on. So we're beginning to understand the functions of, of individual sleeping pills. Uh, we just gave the other example of subarexant and the orexant system. So uh, I don't know whether you'd call those issues chemical imbalance, but I I'd rather put it in a positive way and say that we're beginning to understand the, uh, how these drugs act physiologically. Just to kind of summarize without getting too technical, um, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong in anything I'm going to say here, but it sounds as though we have drugs that increase levels or activity of an amino acid such as GABA that helps slow brain activity. We've got the, the benzodiazepines such as triazolam, uh, temazepam, and even the non-benzos like sulpidem, Ambien. The, the, the latter being thought to be better since, from what I understand from your book, they bind to a more limited number of receptors, so the effects tend to be more specific to sleep. And then we have these drugs that weaken the wake-promoting areas of the brain in different ways, the Remelteon, Suvorexin, and Doxepin. So with this in mind, is it fair to say the sleeping pills are generating sleep, or are they instead just weakening wakefulness and generating sedation? Well, I think uh, there's more than one road to the same place. Uh, and uh, wakefulness and sleep result from a, a balance of forces um, that tend to push in the direction of um, wakefulness and other physiologic processes that tend to push in the direction of sleep. Uh, and of course, sleep is also highly influenced by uh, the circadian body clock, uh, which can also be influenced by some of these drugs. Um, in addition, sleep is influenced by uh, the homeostatic system, which, which tends to um, try to make up for decreased sleep um, if, if there's been prior sleep deprivation. So th there's a multitude of um, forces in, impinging on whether we're awake or asleep, and uh, drugs that promote sleep can, can work by promoting or decreasing any of these forces. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask that question is because a, a lot of times when I'm working with people with insomnia, they feel that a medication, regardless of what it might be, is somehow generating sleep. And I do like to try and shift the mindset to one of, well, 
any sleep we get is being generated by our own body. So no pill in itself can generate sleep. But what a pill can do is kind of promote relaxation, maybe help lower that initial barrier or obstacle to sleep, which might be worry about sleep, anxiety, higher levels of arousal. But once that barrier is lowered and the sleep occurs, it's the body that's generating the sleep because no pill can actually generate sleep itself. Would you say that's that's something reasonable to say? I'm not sure how we can how to define the concept of generating sleep. I I, I kind of prefer to think of it the way that that we mentioned it before that 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 the sleep and wakefulness result from a balance of of forces and and what sleeping pills tend to do is to alter that balance uh, I think the situation that you described it might be more applicable to a um, a tranquilizer for instance so for instance if somebody is being kept awake by anxiety and a medicine decreased anxiety it might allow the normal uh processes of sleep to you know to be more likely to occur but in, in terms of medicines that promote sleep i i guess i i better take a pass on that one something that can be quite misleading when it comes to the effectiveness of sleeping pills might be how we measure clinical effectiveness because i think some people can be surprised that for a sleeping pill to be considered clinically effective, it might only need to improve sleep onset by around, say, 10 minutes compared to a placebo, sleep duration by around 20 minutes compared to a placebo. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think the sleeping pills truly are as effective as we might think they are? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I do, actually. Uh, let me just Go back to your broader question of how do we measure whether something's effective? Uh, the numbers you mentioned are are true, but not the whole picture. They they're numbers that have to do with polygraphically measured sleep, uh, and there's a number of ways to getting at effectiveness. So one of them is the use of the polygraph sleep measure. Another equally important is how people experience sleep after medicine so what they report uh, about their sleep and in many ways uh, can even be more important after all a patient doesn't go to a doctor or, or therapist to say hey my polygraphic sleep is 10 minutes too long or too short they say hey i'm, I'm feeling like my sleep isn't deep and it's not restful and i don't feel good in the morning all right so so um both methods are important the the uh, patient reports are very valuable because they they actually get it that the complaint the reason a person wants a treatment uh, they um their weakness is that they're not as quantifiable as a physiologic measure like the polysondogram or PSG for short. On the other hand, the, the polysondogram 
with its advantage of being quantitative has uh, disadvantages. And one of those is it's very hard to relate the number of um, minutes of shortening polygraphically defined sleep to the clinical experience of a good night's sleep or to the experience of feeling in the morning that sleep is restful. Um, it, I guess another advantage of the polygraphically measured sleep besides being quantifiable is that it helps us uh, make sure that a person doesn't like a medicine for the wrong reason. Uh, some medicines might be euphorians, for instance, and somebody says, oh, I like that because they, they, they felt a sense of euphoria. And they, so a, po a polygraphic sleep helps, helps remove some, some of those extraneous reasons for liking or disliking a drug. So I, I don't, I think it's true, but incomplete to say that uh, clinical effectiveness of uh, any treatment is, is only 10 minutes shorter falling asleep or 20 minutes longer. That's part of one measure and, and, and not the whole picture. Yeah, I think you raised a really important point with this subjective versus objective measure of sleep, because especially in insomnia, we see that, for example, the amount of sleep someone with chronic insomnia reports is typically less than what we would see if they took an overnight sleep study. And so there is, there is this mismatch, but ultimately all that really does matter is what you perceive to be good sleep or poor sleep because sleep is so subjective. So if you feel that you're getting a good night's sleep, you feel like you've got enough energy to get through the day, really that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter so much how many hours a machine is saying you're getting of sleep. If it feels like you're getting good restorative sleep and you're getting through the day, the chances are your sleep's pretty good. Well, again, um, I, I think, you know, as, as, as you pointed out, and as I say, the reason a person goes to the doctor generally is because uh, the sensation and experience of not sleeping well. So in many, in many ways, the, the, a very important test of a treatment is how they feel about their sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you more about the potential side effects of sleeping pills, but I think you've covered quite a lot of this already when you were t talking us through the different types of sleeping pills. But what, one thing that I did want to ask you about, and you mentioned this in your book, understanding sleeping pills was to do with the potential for some daytime impairment, whether that's sedation or memory issues, things like that. You mentioned that very often someone might be impaired, but not even be aware of it. So they might say that, nope, I don't feel any of these daytime effects, but objective testing tells us otherwise. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and why this is perhaps an important point? Well, sure, uh, and you raised a, an important issue. Uh, again, different, uh, different sleeping pills may have different or little or no effect on uh, wakefulness and performance the next morning. Uh, to give you an example, Ramelgian uh, has very little, uh, if any, effect on next day uh, when taken in the recommend the dose, you know, uh, you know, in the evening, uh, 
other other medicines uh, may. Now the benzodiazepines varied in that result depending on the duration of action of the drug. So very short acting drugs like Xalapon had relatively little effect the next day, whereas longer acting drugs like um, uh, um could indeed perform, uh, reduce wakefulness and performance the, ne um, the next morning. Um, one result of that in the case of azopagone, incidentally, was uh, that in 2017, if I recall correctly, uh, the recommended starting dose was lowered uh, by the FDA in order to reduce the possibility of, of daytime uh, sleepiness. So different drugs have have different results in, in uh, regard to that. The uh, other point, which uh, I hadn't mentioned, you brought up, it's a really uh, important one. And that is that for many drugs, and especially benzodiazepine, a, a person is not always aware that they're impaired. You know, if 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 you were aware of it and you just sort of felt bad, you know, you would, a, a reasonable person would take precautions, uh, you know, not to expose themselves to any way they could be accidentally harmed by being too sleepy and so on. But one characteristic of benzodiazepines is that very often a person is not aware of it. So using the example of fluorazepam or Dalmain, there, there were very nice studies that would show decreased performance on different kinds of psychomotor tests, but a person's subjective report was that they, they did not feel impaired. Mm -hmm. I think another important point on the issue of daytime sedation, fatigue, morning grogginess, this memory impairment and things like that, is we can easily attribute symptoms like that to a, a poor night of sleep or insufficient sleep duration or insufficient sleep quality, when it could actually be a side effect of whatever medication we're taking. Would you say that that's a possibility or that that's fair to say? Well, I think it works in both directions. Um, now, the, the issue of benzodiazepines and cognition, you know, is one that's received a lot of attention. Um, I know there was one analysis a few years ago of uh, 13 studies uh, that found that people taking benzos, which is short for benzodiazepine, for over a year found deficits in, in a number of areas like verbal learning and speed of processing and things like this. Uh, now, it, things to remember is that it wasn't clear how clinically significant these measures were. It's just like the same issue of how clinically significant is 10 minutes less sleep latency. And another issue is whether these were actually direct effects of benzos on cognition or whether they were secondary to sedation. Uh, the uh, good news is that generally these clear up when a drug is, uh, is stopped. 
But the thing to remember is uh, the other side of the coin, which, which is that um, anxiety uh, and insomnia can both influence cognitive studies themselves. So it's very hard to separate whether cognitive impairment uh, is, you know, is secondary to uh, anxiety or insomnia or whether it's due to the medication. Yeah. We've been talking quite a lot about side effects. I think it's important for us to distinguish or just to talk about whether these risks are different short-term versus longer-term. What do we see in terms of effectiveness and potential side effects with sleeping pills over the long-term? Are they effective over the long-term? And is there any risk associated with taking sleeping pills over the long-term versus just short-term use? Well, we've just talked about a study for uh, which analyzed all the available literature that met a certain quality uh, for people taking benzos for over one year. And uh, so I think we've addressed that pretty clearly. Uh, now, another concern about long-term use that's been raised uh, and appropriately set off alarms in the last few years has been some studies that seem to suggest the long-term use of benzos might be associated with uh, a uh, more greater likelihood of developing dementia. Uh, some of these studies were of better quality than others. Uh, so we really haven't been certain about this, although it's been a suspicion. Happily, a study came out this year that was a huge study. It had about over 200,000 patients in it. It happened to be depressed patients, but they, they, they looked at people uh, with extensive use of either benzodiazepines or the newer Z drugs, and they, they found no increase in the rate of dementia during a, uh, I think it was 6.1 year follow-up. So, what I can say is that suspicion has been raised, but happily, at least in the case of patients with depression who are taking benzos drugs, uh, this very, very large study did not see any evidence of, uh, of a higher rate of dementia. I guess another issue that's... Uh, you hear about a lot is whether sleeping pills are associated with uh, more, higher mortality. Um, a lot of this came up in the 1970s, uh, partly as a uh, as a result of re-analyzing data from the American Cancer Society national study. It's the same study that first raised alarms about smoking and cancer. But as it happened, they, they, they had a lot of other kinds of questions in there about health and so on. And it was thought that there was some association. Um, again, that was an alarming kind of thing, but there, there's a number of things to bear in mind. Uh, one is that uh, further analyses of these types of data began to show that any association wasn't really with prescription sleeping pills, it was with 
over-the-counter sleeping pills and with other kinds of medicines that were used off-label to promote sleep. In other words, the questions were asked was, did a drug that you used for sleep, have, you know, associated with these things? And it turned out prescription sleeping pills weren't so clearly associated. It was more of these other things. Um, now, another issue is that the studies showing a higher mortality with sleeping pills usually did not take account of the presence of either psychiatric illness or sleep disorders. Um, one, one study which went back and reviewed that found that when they did take into account uh, the presence of psychiatric illness or sleep disorders, there was no longer an association with mortality. Something you just touched upon, which I thought was really interesting and leads me into my next question is, one way we might be tempted to improve our sleep, but maybe expose ourselves to fewer potential side effects is with the use of non-prescription, over-the-counter medications, supplements, or herbal preparations, things like antihistamines, melatonin, valerian, they're, they're all quite popular um, as sleep aids. So are these effective treatments for chronic insomnia? And although you've kind of touched upon this already, since they're available over the counter, does this mean that they're safe and don't carry any risk of side effects? Well, you, you've brought up a very important issue because a lot of people sort of uh, follow a reasoning which says, well, if it's not prescription, it, maybe it won't help, but it can't hurt. And, and actually, that's that's simply not true. Different kinds of non-prescription agents can have uh, a number of health consequences. Uh, before I go into them, I just want to remind us all that everything that I am saying today should in no way be construed as advice for an individual for their health care or for the insomnia. I mean, the, what I'm talking about are general principles. And, and again, any person who uh, has trouble sleeping or has any of the other illnesses we may have mentioned uh, should go to their doctor and talk about it and be evaluated by their doctor. Uh, so we're not providing health advice today, but rather talking about some general principles about these medicines. Uh, okay, having said that, um, let's look at some of the ones in term. Uh, antihistamines have, have a long history of being used for sleep. It, it actually turns out that, uh, of course, the at least the first generation of them certainly does make you feel sleepy in the daytime. The, the question is whether the experience of feeling sleepy when you take them in the daytime translates into improving sleep when you take them at nighttime. And it actually turns out it doesn't translate very well. Uh, the studies are complicated, but, but Overall, it's, it's not so easy to show a whole lot of benefit in formal studies of taking sleeping, uh, taking antihistamines as sleeping pills. Uh, there was even one study uh, done in Europe, which would seem to show that uh, diphenhydramine can disturb sleep. Uh, it's also, they of course have their own set of, of side effects which need to be taken into account. Um, now, another um, 
I think that you've mentioned uh, is valerian, uh, which has the appeal of being a natural herb. Uh, the things to know about it is that, again, the studies are not absolutely consistent as to how much benefit it might or might not have. And it's certainly not free of side effects. I mean, it can cause headaches, stomach problems, dizziness. And some people, it actually disturbs sleep. And uh, it can interact with other agents. Uh, one in particular is uh, uh, St. John's wort. Uh, and when valerian and St. John's wort are taken together, uh, there's sort of an increase of their uh, qualities. and among other things, it can result in impairment in thinking, judgment, uh, coordination. Melatonin is yet another one. Again, it, it has a certain appeal of being a natural body hormone, but th there's many things to remember. Uh, one is, although there was initially enthusiasm about it as a sleeping pill, uh, as more and more data accumulated, and my studies are among these, the, there really is not very good evidence that it uh, uh, improves sleep in folks with regular uh, non-circadian insomnias. And, and that conclusion has been reached by the professional organizations related to sleep and some of their recommendations. Uh, it can be uh, a useful uh, treatment for uh, in situations like jet lag, which in which sleep disturbances are related to very clear changes in the body clock, but that's a that's a sort of a different situation. Uh, again, it can have side effects, including headache, nausea, sedation the next morning, and there's actually a pretty long list of drugs it can interact with. Uh, Melatonin can interact with anticoagulants, anticonvulsants, um, contraceptive drugs, some diabetes medicines, and some medicines uh, for suppressing the immune system. So it's not a, um, an entirely benign substance uh, just because it's uh, not prescription. The other thing to know about it, of course, is that the, the doses of melatonin that mimic uh, what the body produces physiologically are very low, uh, whereas the doses that are available, you know, over-the-counter over can be much, much higher than that. So, you're, so if you're taking one of these higher doses, you're not necessarily mimicking normal physiology. The, the other point about any of these uh, agents that we've just mentioned um, is that over-the-counter products are not given the same scrutiny as to purity and uh, quantity that prescriptions are. So I know there was one famous study of melatonin uh, products, you know, bought off the shelf that showed that they varied very, very widely in their content compared to what the label said. So that's always an issue with any over-the-counter drug. Yeah.
We've covered a lot of ground on sleeping pills for insomnia, how they, how they evolved, how they can carry a risk of some side effects, and that ultimately we, we still don't know for sure how they might affect our health, um, especially over the long term. In, in your book, Understanding Sleeping Pills, you wrote that if someone's sleep isn't getting better on sleeping pills, instead of searching for more and more medicines, it might be worth considering whether an alternative approach might be appropriate. And one of these alternative approaches is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. A number of organizations such as the American College of Physicians and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine now recommend that individuals with chronic insomnia receive CBTI as the initial treatment intervention. Since improvements typically continue after completion of treatment and typically comes with fewer side effects. And as you pointed out in your book, the benefits of CBTI can be slower to appear compared to taking a pill, but they do tend to last longer. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on CBTI as a first line treatment for chronic insomnia. Do you think it should be available as a first line treatment? Well, sure. Um, there's a lot of roads to the same result. And uh, we've talked today about pharmacologic treatments, which happens to be you know, what, I, what I study, but it's very important to know that, that's, that there, there's, there were many important uh, non-pharmacologic uh, therapies uh, for sleep, of which the best documented is, is CBTI. Um, my own feeling is that the first step for anybody with sleep disorders uh, or sleep complaints is neither CBTI or sleeping pills. The first step is to go to a doctor to determine whether there is some other process that may be disturbing sleep. Uh, sleep can be disturbed by any number of illnesses. It can be disturbed by psychiatric disorders such as depression, which is often not recognized by the patient himself or herself. Uh, and it can be disturbed by other medicines that a person may be taking for some entirely other uh, reason. So I, to me, the very first step when a person is troubled by insomnia or excessive sleepiness is to get a thorough medical evaluation for any of those possible things. Now, if those are not found, uh, then I think every person should make their their own choice uh, as to the um, appropriate treatment. Uh, some fit one person better, some fit the needs of another person better. I tend, in a situation where a person has already been medically and psychiatrically evaluated and nothing has been found, uh, I think it's very appropriate um, to um, begin with CBTI for the reasons that you have uh, mentioned. Uh, also, I, I think it's important to note that a good um, doctor, you know, for insomnia may be giving medicines, but actually does many of the things that are incorporated into CBTI 
as part of helping the patient. Uh, uh, a, a good doctor is not a dispensing machine where you you know put in a quarter and get a a pill. He's, he's a human being interacting with another human being uh, with concern and with with discussion of sleep habits uh, and many of the other things that actually happen in CBTIs. One thing I think um, you touched on that great point there of seeing doctors as pill dispensing machines. I think it's important to recognize that a lot of people who may be taking sleeping pills now might never have even been offered an alternative to sleeping pills when they sought help for their insomnia. I know just from when I talk to people with insomnia that even today, a lot of people who go to their doctor, they're offered sleeping pills or information on sleep hygiene and for those of us in the sleep field you know we know that sleep hygiene isn't helpful for chronic insomnia other people might be told about cbti techniques but there's really that lack of access to professionals who can actually help them implement the techniques so you know this is a real challenge and it's in my opinion it's where the healthcare sector is letting people with insomnia down somewhat and going back to what you said about avoiding this ongoing search for the next medicine, the next pill. I find it quite ironic that this is kind of the opposite of what we see the pharmaceutical industry doing in a way. As you described at the start of our conversation, each generation of um, pills aims to address a limitation of the previous generation. So while we see that moving from pill to pill probably isn't the best long-term solution. At the same time, we see the industry coming out and doing just that, coming out with the next pill, the next generation, and the next generation. And that, in a way, can keep us hooked on that journey of moving from pill to pill to pill. I agree with you that it's very important that all healthcare providers uh, explain the range of treatments that are available for insomnia. And a very important part of that range is is CBTI and uh, related treatments. And I I certainly do agree with you about that. So in your experience, uh, what's the best solution for getting off sleeping pills for those people that want to do so? Is there a trusted reference, a trusted resource, or a kind of best practice for this? Well, again, let me emphasize that that my answer does not constitute medical advice, but just some comments on some general principles. But if a person is on a, a sleeping pill long term and and wishes to stop, the the first step is to do this in conjunction with a doctor and not on your own and to do it under the doctor's supervision. And what is generally done is to taper the medicine, that is to gradually lower the dose, um, and this is very important to avoid any kind of discontinuation side effects. Uh, speaking as a clinician, uh, not, not really a scientist, but as a clinician, what I often do is try to have a person um, feel that they're not giving something up, but rather that they're trading one approach for another by having them uh, enter either CBTI or other kinds of uh, talking therapies for insomnia before uh, before tapering and stopping sleeping pills. And uh, 
and my own experience in, in the clinic is that, that that's very often a useful approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense because once someone does tend to come off the sleeping pills, because the sleeping pills aren't addressing these, these behaviors that typically perpetuate insomnia and sleep disruption, we do often see that rebound insomnia. So by at the same time, kind of having one strategy of tapering off the sleeping pills, but also addressing these thoughts and behaviors by implementing something such as CBTI, you're really giving yourself the best chance of success and minimizing the potential for that rebound insomnia. Uh, well, I, I, again, just speaking from my own experience, I think it can often be useful to, to uh, do that while uh, tapering a medicine under the supervision of a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken out of your day to come on today, Dr. Mendelssohn. I think people are going to find our conversation really interesting. You've shared a lot of great information about, about sleeping pills and potential alternatives. I do have one last quick question for you. It's one that I try and ask everyone that comes on. If someone with chronic insomnia is listening and feels as though they've tried everything, that they're beyond help and that they can't do anything to improve their sleep. What would you tell them? Well, I, I, I think if a, uh, if a person is uh, concerned about their sleep and doesn't know what to, uh, what to do, uh, certainly the first step is, is seeing your physician to look at uh, other kinds of causes such as medical illnesses or medicines that may be disturbing sleep. A second and very important step is finding a uh, a reputable and licensed healthcare provider uh, whose specialty is sleep. That's great. Thank you so much again for your time, Dr. Mendelssohn. Okay, thank you. Enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for listening to the Insomnia Coach podcast. If you're ready to implement evidence-based cognitive and behavioral techniques to improve your sleep, but think you might need some additional support and guidance, I would love to help. There are two ways we can work together. First, you can get my online coaching course. This is the most popular option. My course combines sleep education with individualized coaching and is guaranteed to improve your sleep. You will learn new ways of thinking about sleep and implement better sleep habits over a period of eight weeks. This gives you time to build sleep confidence and notice results without feeling overwhelmed. You can get the course and start right now at insomniacoach.com forward slash online. I also offer a phone coaching package where we start with a one hour call. This can be voice only or video, your choice, and we come up with an initial two-week plan that will have you implementing cognitive and behavioral techniques that will lead to long-term improvements in your sleep. You get unlimited email-based support and guidance for two weeks after the call, along with a half-hour follow-up call at the end of the two weeks. You can book the phone coaching package at insomniacoach.com forward slash phone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Insomnia Coach podcast. I'm Martin Reed, and as always, I'd like to leave you with this important reminder. You can sleep. <laughs>